Welcome to the Mindful Medicina Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeanette Daniels. I'm a naturopathic medical doctor on a mission to inspire a renewed confidence in the intelligence of the human body. And joining the conversation today is my friend and colleague, Janelle Hartman, lymphatic and colon hydrotherapist, esteemed yoga teacher of teachers, and the co-producer of this show. From hardcore scientist to the quantum angel hypnotist, Dr. Sarah Pugh has the mind of a scientist and the heart and soul of a healer. She started her career as a research scientist with a degree in biochemistry and genetics from the University of Leeds in the UK. She also has a PhD in molecular mechanisms and biophysics. Dr. Pugh reports that her research ended when she could no longer bear the body aches that came from the poor ergonomics associated with laboratory work. She left the lab in 2010 realizing that she preferred working directly with people anyways. Dr. Pugh started her journey as a healer, helping people contend with pain through the modality of Pilates. From there, she sunk her teeth into functional neurology to add a whole new dimension to clients after learning about the neuroplasticity and the importance of the vagus nerve. She finds that problems in the nervous system can be the root cause of stress and vice versa. Dr. Pugh rounded out her toolkit of therapies becoming a hypnotherapist in 2012. She has developed her own hypnotic techniques based on the memory of water, biogeometry, spiritual practices, and ancient cultures. She has studied Christian mysticism, angels, and Kabbalah. She is currently studying biogeometry and sacred geometry. Dr. Pugh has a growing thirst for understanding the complexity and the magnificence of nature and our relationship to it, not just for health, but for life itself. As a guest speaker, she is often asked to go into matters of quantum biology, including light, water, and magnetism. She is a wizard when it comes to topics in circadian biology, deuterium depleted water, and mitochondrial function. She promotes living within the laws of nature for optimal health. Today, Dr. Pugh joins us to talk about water. It won't be the typical drink your eight cups of water a day conversation. You'll find by the end of the conversation that it's more important that you make water than drink it. Dr. Pugh will discuss how mitochondria play a critical role in making water and what happens when mitochondria have too much deuterium in them. We will go into the nuances of the varying hydrogen isotopes, lending to the differences between easy water, which is also known as light water or deuterium-depleted water, versus heavy water, which can be found running from faucets in seed oils and processed foods. We will also talk location, location, location. Latitude differences when it comes to hydrogen densities. To put a bow on it, we will dive into how to deplete deuterium water within the mitochondria to stave off disease. I absolutely love this topic and I can't wait to drink it up. Okay, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Sarah Pugh. We are so excited to talk to you about water. 
Okay, so we wanted to go into understanding uh, the different types of water because most people believe that water is water is water. But we know that because there are different isotopes of hydrogen, uh, that that statement is not true. And so if you could go over for us these different types of hydrogen and why that matters when it comes to consumption of water and how that affects us. Okay, I think I might backtrack a little bit first because my background was biochemistry. And as you know, it's fundamental to have extremely clean water to do things like PCR or molecular biology. So before uh, thinking about deuterium, I think it's really important to think about what's actually in our water. Our tap water contains not just water, but the whole periodic table plus people's medication and birth control. So the very fundamental thing about water is to have it clean and then before we get into deuterium there's people may know about ice and steam and liquid water but there's also the fourth phase of water that Dr Gerald Pollock talks about which is uh, the gel-like phase where the water structures itself into just we'll call it something very basic now into sort of hexagons and the water charge separates and the electrons and protons can behave differently in this water. And this is kind of fundamental to how we function on the level of having a water battery in our body. And this, it, I would just call this the sort of crux of our life force. So there's a lot more to water than just drinking. And if we think about deuterium and hydrogen, hydrogen's the first element of the periodic table. And deuterium is an isotope of hydrogen because it, it also has a neutron in its nucleus and this very small change makes deuterium twice the size it bonds differently it's got a magnetic moment and people may have heard of an isotope in terms of carbon 14 which is used for dating uh, uh, compounds and dinosaurs and things like that but deuterium's not radioactive so it's not toxic in that sense and also even though too much deuterium in the body has been shown numerous times to be detrimental it's absolutely fundamental for life because the way the sun makes light and heat because the sun is just a big ball of hydrogen and plasma deuterium is actually utterly crucial for why we're here why the sun shines and why um the stars shine. So it's nothing bad. It's just like anything, when it gets out of balance with normal hydrogen in the body, it can be very problematic. Okay. So yeah, so definitely looking at all of the things that are in our drinking water to begin with is where we would start. And there are some people who believe that, hey, just be grateful that you have quote unquote clean drinking water. Um, Dr. Campbell actually talks about that. So there's different levels of appreciation for water. Um, but you can see that probably one of the most toxic things in water that people talk about is fluoride. Yeah, that's correct, because fluoride's the most electronegative element in the periodic table. So it steals electrons uh, from everything it can get its hands on if we think it's a person. And again, the electron flow in our body is our life force. And without electrons, 
we wouldn't be alive. So the, the more electrons we have, the, the better our health, just in simple terms. And also fluoride is smaller and more reactive than iodine. So it's going to interfere with the thyroid gland, which again is our gas pedal in terms of metabolism. And most people have sort of heard of thyroid and a lot of people I work with have got um, thyroid problems. And like we talked about earlier, they think just medication is the solution, whereas they've never looked at their drinking water and how that might impact their energy levels. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's very fascinating. I just learned recently that fluoride uh, goes after those electrons and also being a halogen, it will um, sort of interfere with thyroid function. Um, And people aren't looking at that as a source of thyroid dysfunction. Um, I, from what I remember when I was in medical school, because I went to medical school in Portland, Oregon, I don't know if this is still the case, but they're supposedly the only state that has fluoride free water. I, I don't know if that is true. Uh, one would have to test that, but I, uh, how do you feel about these fluoride filters? Do you think that they're effective? Uh, no, because um, working in a laboratory, we only used five times or one times distilled water because that gets out absolutely everything. And with filters, there are so many compounds in the water and the way the, the structure of fluoride means it can be difficult to filter out. So I think sometimes just going back to sort of basic biochemistry in order to create cleanliness. And often when I'm trying to work out how to do something, I'll always look, okay, what are they doing in sport? Because they want the absolute best for their athletes, because it's the difference between coming last or coming first, and there's a lot of money. Or I'll just go back to what we did in the lab. And like I said, you can't do PCR or molecular biology with water that's contaminated because you'd create so many problems um, for your experiments. So that's why in my mind, I'd say distilling and then remineralizing is how I personally do it, because then I can control every last mineral that goes back into my water and I can choose high quality sea salts. I can choose exactly which minerals I want. I can choose a form of magnesium I want. And I'm not dependent on a company remineralizing my water or just guessing how many minerals there might be in, say, spring water. So that's my personal approach to water. And I think there are lots of rights that that's just something I found to be easy to do because a distiller is very affordable uh, f- for anybody. And like you pointed out, it is, uh, we should be grateful to have clean water, but then we can, for a very small amount, make it super clean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the most important thing, um, and we'll get to this later, is, is not that we drink water because we all know the saying, hey, you need to drink eight glasses of water a day and some people are over drinking water and we could talk about why that is not good. But being able to make water intracellularly is more important than drinking it. And we'll get into some conversation around mitochondria. Um, So if we were to go into a grocery store, would you suggest a particular type of bottled water that would be the best, say, for example, mountain water, as it typically contains less deuterium? I think it depends on the latitude of where the water came from, because the closer 
you get to the equator, the more deuterium there is naturally, just because the inhabitants or the mammals or the people in that region have got the capacity to deplete deuterium. Whereas if you go to more northern latitudes, because I live at the 53rd latitude, and then you can go even further into Scandinavia and Iceland. So there's naturally less deuterium in the northern latitudes that we have less sun. So I think it depends on, number one, where the water came from. And also when it comes to say, spring water or, or glacial water, say if there's frozen water, the first runoff, um, say if it had been frozen, that water is going to be low in deuterium because it's going to be trapped in the, the ice structure. So if you can find water that's glacial, the first runoff that's come from a higher latitude, then it's going to be lower in deuterium. Uh, naturally. But there are so many other ways that we can deplete deuterium, not just using water. And also it's a lot about an input system, as in how much deuterium we're taking in, the processing, how does our body deal with it? And then the output, what are we doing to deplete deuterium in our bodies? Because Mother Nature isn't that cruel to not give us tools to be able to manage deuterium uh, naturally. Mm-hmm. I love that you said that. And nature doesn't make mistakes, right? Oh, yes, exactly. That's why deuterium isn't anything bad, that it's fundamental for our existence and then the quantum properties of deuterium because it does something called quantum superposition. It's a very interesting molecule from a sort of quantum mechanics perspective. So it most certainly isn't evil. And it's got uses in biochemistry because we use um, deuterated water for doing um, magnetic resonance uh, spectroscopy or NMR. So it does have a use. It's just like anything. It's when it's in the wrong place in the body or there's too much of it, that's when it becomes problematic because it's not balanced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was super impressed um, and just wowed by realizing that when deuterium is in the blood and it has any sort of compression that creates light and it's just really speaks to us being light beings. So uh, t- time and place, right, for things and uh, and for deuterium is no different, right? So- Absolutely. And it's mm-hmm. also in the cerebral spinal fluid in large amounts. And that's a really interesting fluid in the body. And people like Dr. Mario Zapatera have studied this in depth. And the fact that there's a lot of deuterium in the CSF is I think, again, all part of how we have this light show and how light's even involved in our consciousness. Mm, lovely. So um, how about let's dive into what is deuterium and what does it mean to have different isotopes um, of hydrogen and how deuterium is connected to our mitochondria? Okay, so, so actually there are three isotopes of hydrogen. There's a third one called tritium that is radioactive, but we won't talk about that. So with hydrogen itself, it's like pivotal for energy in our bodies, but also it's pop basically participates in so many chemical reactions. And also wherever we've got organic chemistry or molecules or structures in the body or biology, there's always going to be hydrogen attached to it or part of it. And the other key feature of hydrogen itself is it's a natural antioxidant that can penetrate deep into cells, just like an electron can, because uh, just going back to basic chemistry and that word oil rig, reduction um, is gain and oxidation is loss. So the movement of electrons and hydrogen are absolutely vital for redox reactions in the body. and. Also, in terms of the mitochondria, 
for people who are not sure, it's an organelle in your body. And in simple terms, it receives protons that come from food and, and water and then electrons. And the electrons go down the electron transport chain. They, they tunnel down. And the hydrogens are responsible for that they create a gradient, uh, sort of a bit like a, a turbine in sort of hydroelectrics, and they fall down through the middle of the ATPase, which spins, and the ATPase spins, and then we get ATP coming out. And we get other things out of the mitochondria, such as deuterium-depleted water, light, um, infrared. But, but what can happen is, because deuterium's got the extra neutron and it's different, if, if it gets stuck in the ATPase, it, it breaks it, uh, and what will happen now is that this is going to affect the mitochondria. And as soon as we start damaging organelles or an organ, the first response is inflammation. So we end up with inflammation and then death of the mitochondria, which is then going to translate into inflammation and then uh, damage to whatever organ that mitochondria is in. So it matters a lot if it's something like a heart or your brain or your ovaries, where there are lots of mitochondria. So that's one of the reasons why deuterium is problematic, because it's not supposed to be in the mitochondria and the water that the mitochondria make if everything's working properly it's completely deuterium depleted so there's no deuterium at all in the water that we produce ourselves and because again mother nature is clever and doesn't make mistakes there's a few more steps before hydrogen and electrons go into the mitochondria there's something called glycolysis which when glucose gets break, broken down there's a series of steps where your body's checking that there's not a deuterium because carbohydrates contain a lot more deuterium than fats and then there's another step called the tca or the krebs cycle and this is another series of checkpoints to make sure that the deuterium doesn't manage to get into the electron transport chain or, or near it or, or near the ATPase. So we do have a mechanism in place if we look after our bodies properly, even if some deuterium nearly gets in the mitochondria, we, we've got a protection mechanism. It's when this becomes overloaded that it's a problem in the mitochondria, because if the TCA cycle gets blocked up with deuterium, it stops becoming a cycle, it becomes just a linear reaction. And this is one of the steps in which um, cancer can start. And there's a, a direct correlation with cancer and deuterium. So it's again, this idea of, you know, we've got protective mechanisms in our bodies, but we still need to look after our bodies in order for these mechanisms to be active and not to overload ourselves with anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the deuterium, because it has, uh, it differs from protium, right? Where it has mm -hmm. a neutron. So it's double the mass than what our mitochondria need. So it's sort of, to me, I always visualize it as being really heavy motor oil, deuterium. Mm -hmm. And uh, when you put that into an engine, it just kind of slows the energy production of that, of that engine. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But also, if we look back to the water battery in our body, if we've got deuterium, because it does play some role in the structured water because it can, or the EZ water or the fourth phase. So in a sensible amount, it can actually help to create uh, this gel-like structure. But then when we have too much deuterium in our exclusion zone because it's a water it's because it's not just water it's a sort of information superhighway that it can actually impact how much overall energy we've got in our battery then i mentioned hormones earlier because 
and how in biology there there are hydrogens attached to everything from progesterone to thyroxine to dopamine whatever you can imagine so if you have a deuterium instead because it's a different it's a different shape it's a different size it's got a different magnetic moment it it forms different bond um sort of strengths the body can then find a situation where other components that need to recognize the hormones don't recognize deuterated hormones anymore. So, so that's another layer of how I would say that deuterium can be the energy thief and mm-hmm. um, hydrogen or protium uh, can, or a proton can be an energy giver. So there's multiple reasons why deuterium has a sort of unwanted effects in the body. It's also a growth factor. Again, um, Dr. Gabor Shomali is an expert here because it's the way in which it interacts with the protein kinases. But but this is beneficial for, say, a small organism like a fly or a bacterium or something which has a very short lifespan because it needs they need deuterium to grow. And also children and small creatures in the early stages of life, need deuterium in order to, to grow properly. So like everything, Mother Nature's put it there for a reason. It's just after the age of, say, 18 or 20 as an adult, we should be deuterium depleting, not deuterium collecting. But, but this also means that something like a small organism, say the microbes in our gut, they don't mind deuterium at all because their ATPase works or spins in a different way to ours. So they aren't bothered by deuterium at all. So it's again, you know, looking after our ecosystem inside us can be one very simple step to managing our deuterium levels. And again, the gut microbiome is another sort of um, protection mechanism we have towards ingesting deuterium. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it actually can. It actually maintains the deuterium levels by consuming it. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, with the microbiome being such a, a novel study for us, we we don't know a whole lot. In my opinion, uh, we're we're still learning. Um, oh, oh yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. I think we know more about Jupiter and its moons than we do about <laughs> the biome. <laughs> and that's why I kind of just stay out of anything to do with guts. I always say, look, the microbiome's much cleverer than you are um, because it also makes neurotransmitters. Just leave it alone and, and stop tormenting it with all mm-hmm. kinds of weird things that you're doing. And if, if you're kind to it, it'll help you out. And just remember, it's sort of a brain in itself. Yeah. I mean, I, and then when I think about taking probiotics, et cetera, um, and, and you realize that a lot of supplements are deuterium heavy, you just think, you, wow, you're just compounding your problem. Oh, definitely. But also I worked in a laboratory with bacteria and I know they don't like going in the freezer in um, in glycerol. So the idea of freeze drying them, I can't see how they'd survive. I mean, some will. If, if it's like a spore type bacterium, they can survive or a spore former, but then other ones can't. So again, when it comes to probiotics, we, we can make our own, you know, with fermented food and things like that. Although fermented food and live bacteria or probiotics, if you've got leaky gut, I wouldn't say that's the first um, step I'd take in repairing that area. Mm-hmm. Well, I know uh, Dr. Cruz talks a lot about getting sunshine on your belly for the microbiome. I think that's probably first, first, uh, the first step that I would do if I wanted to balance my microbiome and make everybody happy in there. 
Oh, yeah, definitely. But also it's like the whole every um, organ in the body has its own clock. So even if somebody can't get their belly out in the sun because it might be too cold in, say, Alaska at the moment or um, Seattle or the UK, that just going outside it is going to be massively beneficial because you're setting the master clock, which in the information then propagates down to the other organ clocks and then to the cell clock. So, yeah, absolutely. And the gut microbiome's very light dependent. And then the mitochondria and the sun communicate with each other via light. And the mitochondria themselves are the relic of a bacteria. So they've got the capacity to communicate with other bacteria in the body. So I 100% would start with light um, because it's easy and it's safe and everybody can do it. And I, there's no risk of an ab reaction or mm -hmm. somebody's doctor objecting to you asking your client to go outside more. But also, the, importantly, even if it's cloudy like it is in the UK um, a lot, you still get the near-infrared light. And interestingly, women um, and children and pregnant ladies need more near-infrared light than other people. And also red light's really important for actually helping us to push deuterium out because I know that's the topic of the the, the podcast but the near-infrared is really beneficial for the mitochondria as well because they make melatonin in the daytime all the time if we move about and are exposed to near-infrared and red light particularly and again if the mitochondria are working properly they've got the capacity to deal with deuterium even if um, some try to sneak in. If the mitochondria are functioning well, you, you're going to either protect them, but also your mitochondria are going to be making more water so you can flush out the deuterium from the inside by making um, zero ppm deuterium depleted water yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and now that you've brought that up on the PPM, um, we could go a little bit into what does that mean because a lot of our listeners don't really even know what deuterium is, but like we mentioned that it's it's considered heavy water because it has a neutron, double the mass, mm -hmm. takes up more space, if you will, um, and slows down the function of the mitochondria. So what what would you say is the healthy range for a person to have as far as PPM goes, parts per million. I actually had taken a salivary test to see what my parts per million were as far as deuterium levels go, and it was 147. And um, I, I would say that's on the high end. What are your thoughts on, on that? I'd say between 130 parts per million and 140 is ideal. When you start to get over that, people start to develop maybe one or two sort of minor health ailments. And as the deuterium concentration rises, it becomes more serious. So it goes from just having a weight problem to having obesity or type 2 diabetes. And then you can have an autoimmune disorder and then a second one, and then it can lead to cancer. And it, again, it's accelerated aging. Although I have found that when I've done deuterium tests and saliva tests, sometimes whatever the water is, in the person's area that, that they seem to show up with that level of deuterium themselves. So I think some work is required with improving how deuterium is tested because you can test deuterium in the blood, you can test it in the urine. And sometimes when you're testing, a, say, a fluid that's coming out of the body, you're in part measuring how well they're depleting. But that's my kind of life goal is to have a deuterium uh, testing laboratory in the UK and the US because that's the biggest bottleneck towards 
first of all, identifying a deuterium problem and secondly, making it affordable for people so they can just order a test because it's one of those supply and demand problems that because there are limited testing facilities, it's very costly to test deuterium. So this deters people, which means there's far less data and it deters people from having more than one test. Like, for example, if you test for mercury, it's always a good idea to do blood, um, urine and hair and then compare all of the data to, to find out, you know, find out in depth. Because like you said, that surprised me. It's that level. I'd think you'd be more sort of down the, in the thirty one thirties or the one forties. But then it, it might just be that deuterium's all brand new to you, or it might be an artifact of the testing mechanism you, you've done. Mm-hmm. I, as a doctor, obviously I do a lot of lab panels, and it's perplexing to me that deuterium has never come up on the lab panels. Um, I think if you were to have only one test that you could do on every single person, it would be deuterium for me because the mitochondrial function is the most important thing because we know that disease and cancer begin at the mitochondrial DNA level, not chromosomal. And if you have a one and done test, I would love to see that being checked, uh, routine panels, even once yearly. What are your thoughts? Oh, no, I completely agree. But then I think a lot of the time it's just because it would expose all of the deuterium in the junk food um, that we have, because that's the biggest source of deuterium, because when it comes to water and sort of fruit out of season and sort of potatoes and stuff like that, fine. Yes, they do have more deuterium, but the the processed food is the real enemy and the deuterium provider and, of course, certain supplements. So it would expose those industries and they are very wealthy industries so they can sort of interfere with scientific research because that's one of the reasons I left science because there was too much interference from pharmaceutical companies and food companies and it's hampering research and they also flood the research with papers that they've just funded themselves. And then Dr. Gabor Shomali was telling me he'd applied for funding from the EU to study deuterium depleted water uh, as a safe, effective, non-toxic method for cancer. And the EU rejected his uh, application because obviously they'd rather fund toxic um, medication that's going to produce money because there's no ROI in uh, deuterium research because you can't patent it or anything and you can't really patent deuterium depleted water. So there's multiple reasons why there's a problem, but also it's kind of a new area. And just looping back to the test, the reason it's a nuisance is that the way you collect it, it obviously has to be sterile and like you have to be really careful because you can be really messy with blood collection because I've done that as well and you can just do it anywhere. Whereas if you accidentally have some bacteria in your sample, you're going to measure deuterium in bacteria. And like I said, they love deuterium so you can get faulty answers. Also to do blood uh, measurements, you need a mass spectrometer and that can be sort of costly. So it's not a straightforward lab test because a lot of lab tests are just sort of antibody or ELISA-based tests, which are very, very easy and routine. Whereas deuterium tests, there's it's more complicated and you need a specialist lab. And that's why it, it, it's more expensive to do. So the profit margins are less. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the money is always a thing. Uh, profit. Um, and you would end up finding out that, like you said, the processed food, uh, seed oils and, you know, the nutraceuticals would also 
get sort of busted, if you will. <laughs> oh, like, oh, yeah, definitely, because seed oils are insane, because with glucose, it's about 150 to 155 parts per million, you know, if you measure a carbohydrate, because there's obviously errors in measurements, and then fats, depending on where the, what kind they are. So I would just say a fat from, like, ranging from animal fat to coconut oil and olive oil, like a proper fat, they're 109 to 120 parts per million. So straight away, it's very clear to a layperson and oh okay there's a lot more deuterium in sugar and I should have my deuterium lower so maybe eating too much sugar isn't a good idea but then when you get to seed oils they can be like 200 parts per million and or more so, so it's like astronomically more than than, than glucose mm-hmm. and as you age your mitochondria you get you know mitochondrial dysfunction what do we call it Heter- heteroplasmy Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I used to eat Indian food pr- pretty regularly and it was my favorite food. And as I've gotten older, I just can't process out those heavy oils, those vegetable seed oils that they, you know, the, the food is, you know, basically got, <laughs> it's like, it's like the oil's floating on top. And, uh, I do think that with age, you get this decrease in function in the mitochondria and you do have to tighten up what you're eating and you do have to, um, get out into the environment more because it's when you're a kid, you can get away with a, quite a bit, right? Oh, definitely. And children need less sunshine than adults anyway, partly because of a surface area, but just partly how they function. And as we get older, yeah, we get worse at making nitric oxide. We become more insulin resistant. We become more inflamed. But uh, but I don't ever believe in that because I just think no matter what, uh, you know, there are ways that you can imp- do things to implement this and not to just assume, oh, no, I'm getting older, that things are going to get worse. I've actually got better as I've got now into my late 40s. And there's still things I haven't tried. Like I've never tried um, hydrogen gas or hydrogen water, um, because I sometimes think, oh, I'll leave a few things till I'm sort of in my 50s or 60s. I've never been to the equator. Uh, the, the most southern I've been is the 33rd latitude because I um, lived in Georgia for a bit. So I think it's about you could, if you understand how your body works and where there are sort of deficits, because you mentioned light, water, magnetism, and I always add in oxygen and carbon dioxide onto that, that, that you always find things that you can do to improve yourself and not to think, oh, I'm 55 or 60, What's there's no hope for me. That's complete nonsense because those people have been exposed to much less non-native EMF, so they do have an advantage so, yes, you you know, you're correct. There's the mitochondrial heteroplasmy rate, but we can c- control that to some extent. And also there are benefits to, to getting older. And I, as I was saying, we were talking earlier about teaching yoga and Pilates. I've got clients or had clients who are in their 70s and 80s that could still do headstands. So I, I don't think, you know, it's all over when we get older. I think you just need to <laughs> start to learn about how your body works from a quantum mechanics perspective and then you can bit by bit work out well this is a load of nonsense however this makes sense to me because fundamentally our bodies just revolve around electrons protons deuterium nitrogen carbon and oxygen so if you understand those you can uh, find endless natural things to do for yourself to help yourself keep going or if in doubt just move to the equator (laughs) oh i I used to live in ecuador actually uh, yeah, uh, I wanted to mention, and this would be surprising for some people, especially with uh, politics pushing uh, 
veganism or vegetarianism and what people, and I, and I actually was, I I used to eat vegan slash vegetarian for a long time. And you know what? I did okay. I was younger. I had no problem. I had great mitochondrial function. But what we find is that the fruits and the vegetables, especially when they are mismatched, they are not being grown in the latitude in which you live. You get more deuterium out of, of fruits, especially. Um, so I feel that very importantly, people need to focus on consuming what grows where they live and in season, because could you go a a little bit into, and I know this is a tiny bit off topic, but could you go into how food is sort of a barcode for where we are in space and time? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, so just in simple terms, the light information you get from the sun should be the same light information that you put into your mouth. And just like making it simple to start with, the mitochondria are kind of insider, so they can't see what's on the outside. They're completely dependent on the, the light being propagated from our eyes and our skin through the tissue. So they get information about where we are on the planet. So you can get geo-information through grounding and the Schumann resonance, um, but also you get locate, you know, you can, your body will know your location based on the information from sunlight. So if you suddenly ate a pineapple in, um, in London right now, according to your mitochondria, it's completely and utterly impossible for this to happen on the way in which it understands the world. And and when something impossible happens or something, for example, very confusing in terms of quantum physics, we'd call that chaos and chaos just is another word for inflammation. So it's caused confusion in the mitochondria, but also electrons aren't just some part, something that can be a particle or a wave that's got a negative charge. They also carry information so you can, you can, there's information contained in the electrons and say if something's grown in strong sunlight, a carbohydrate is carrying information um, and it's got information about ultraviolet light. So when it go, when these electrons go into the mitochondria, the mitochondria knows to put these electrons through complex one all the way down to five because complex one is a, a UV and blue light receptor. Whereas if people eat, say, fat, the, the information from an electron from fat, can it skips over complex one and goes down complex two, three, four, and down to five. So food isn't just um, calories or protons or electrons. It's actually very important information. And I think this information, you've mentioned eating out of season, which I've said it's a a quantum mismatch in terms of the light and, and the location on the planet. But also when we start to get into sort of forcing vegetables and fruits to grow at the wrong time of year or eating traumatized food, what kind of information are we then giving our mitochondria on a sort of more metaphysical level? So there's a lot more to food than I think about than just something we stick into our mouths. And you're completely correct. You're there is no perfect way of eating. It all depends on your environment. And even if you live somewhere sunny, say, for example, I have a lot of Indian clients and Pakistani and Bangladeshi, and even in their own countries, they've said we can't really eat the, the diet we used to because there's blue light pollution and then there's non-native EMF. So I think you have to think about where do I live and how much sun do I have, but then think, well, if I live in a city, I need to 
control my way of eating even more because the city and the pollution, the light pollution and EMF is going to steal my water. So therefore, it would make sense for me to eat, have a way of eating that predominantly the energy comes from fat rather than carbohydrate. So first of all, fat's going to make twice as much water as carbohydrate. And secondly, um, the fat contains a lot less deuterium. So there's two reasons to reconsider your way of eating based on your location. And it's not necessarily just to do with uh, sunlight anymore. You have to consider sort of other factors as well. Yeah. And going into the dehydration again, um, just astounding to me how blue light from our computers and our cell phones are so dehydrating and cause a pseudo hypoxia. Uh, so with an increase in technology and exposure to all, I mean, frankly, I feel like we're being electrocuted all the time and all of this um, non-native blue light unopposed by red because it, our eyes and our skin and our blood vessels have never seen blue light in isolation. This is all so inflammatory and toxic to us at a mitochondrial level that because of this, the light toxicity, as you mentioned, um, we really have a lot more work to do uh, if we're going to be sitting in front of a computer for eight hours a day, which is what happened in the last few years, people went behind their screens even more so. So, and then with each addition to the G's, if you will, now we're at 5G, you know, we can see that uh, there's an increase in illness and uh, autoimmune disease and cancer. And uh, <laughs> I, I think you had studied a little bit with Dr. Tom Cohen, right? And yes. he, I have his book actually, um, the Heart Cosmic uh, book, and he talks about perhaps not having, there's really no virus. And so you connect all of these, I guess, if you will, sort of major disease states or uh, pandemics, you, you always see that there's been a new uh, technology and electrical update made on the planet. And it coincides with these strange things like smallpox or COVID. And so there's so much going on at a mitochondrial level to distress us in our health that it's very important to recognize the power of the light and the grid and the information going into our systems. And we have these non-visual photoreceptors, right, that that's melanopsin is picking up that blue light. And until recently, we didn't realize that these 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 photoreceptors are everywhere. So, oh, absolutely! Like vitamin B twelve um, is a fluorophore, and so is leptin. And cholesterol is a um, a non visual photoreceptor that people demonize and try and lower with statins. And there are a whole load more. I mean, like mTOR is a, a light. There's a that's a UV active protein, and people think mTOR is just related to fasting and insulin. So yeah, there's a, a whole host of. I mean, thyroxin or thyroid is a fluorophore. So is melatonin. So is uh, serotonin. So so this i the linear the nonlinear optics that happen in our body are sort of astounding, and it's kind of only the start of our understanding because we don't have the right kind of technology just yet to 
prove this or to study it fully, although the idea of biophotonics is not new. It's just we have to get over this paradigm of biochemistry being everything and people have to accept that they're wrong. Like I will happily say my degree was a complete waste of time and so was all of my time at university, but it doesn't matter because I can relearn it. Even though my PhD was in biophysics, I still kind of didn't really, it didn't tweak properly, probably because I was too young. And I think it's just about explaining to people you know it's not your fault that you've misunderstood but it's just impossible for it to be biochemistry because again I'm not sure what I think about Dr Cowan and his ideas but the, he definitely has a lot to offer that I completely agree it's about the person's terrain and their emotions um, and you know the worse people are and the more deuterium they have the more they seem to have Lyme or long Covid or um, what else is there, mould and stuff like that. Whereas I, I don't really think, you know, I'm not dismissing anybody that suffered from that because it's horrible. But I think when you get rid of the deuterium, the the other things go away as well. And like you said before, if we just have one test, which is deuterium, it just makes everything simple. And it takes the money away from lab companies or unscrupulous practitioners that charge £3,000 worth of labs that are impossible to interpret. Or you can just invent symptoms based on labs, because they're just a snapshot. Um, so, uh, again, I completely agree there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just going into the, the hormone profile, because when I think about, so I, I do a lot of bioidentical hormone replacement, which, oh, again, since having a conversation with Dr. Jack, I'm just like questioning everything. Um, but what we realize is that we have this internal pharmacy and I know that you have spoken to that as well uh, with UVA especially. So getting up with the sunrise to set your circadian for the day and then being there for the UVA, you, you're just making all of these hormones and um, it's, it's really difficult for me to imagine um, that bioidentical hormones are always the answer. But I will say this. What's interesting is that I have never tested deuterium levels in consideration of why someone might have low hormones. Um, and so... Also, you can have really bad MRIs, or I've seen people with terrible labs and no symptoms, and people with perfect MRIs that can't get out of bed, and people with labs that I can't find anything. Well, I can now because I read labs in a, in a quantum way, not the way we're told. Because if you read labs that way, it's very easy for people to look normal, whereas there's other ways to read labs and you can actually find things. But yeah, definitely with bioidenticals, I think it comes down to that progesterone, DHEA, testosterone, they all stem from cholesterol. So they're all themselves a light active molecule. And if you take a bioidentical, say, um, estradiol as estrogel, that's what we use in the UK, it got made in a factory. So it's still estradiol. It just doesn't have the light information. However, mm -hmm. I think the progesterones can be a bit different because even though some of them are made from a wild yam or a plant, at least that progesterone saw the sun. Uh, and, you know, personally, I don't use bioidenticals because I don't need to yet. But mm -hmm. I have seen that when you start having pellets of estrogen and too much testosterone and factory bioidenticals, there have been more issues. But again, there are some people where it's been life-changing for them and some women have got osteoporosis or osteopenia risks and estradiol 
can be beneficial. Mm -hmm. So, and then the mitochondria make pregnenolone anyway. So sometimes people think they're going through the perimenopause, but they've just got bad mitochondria. And when you educate them about water, light, magnetism, changing their ways of eating and living, the mitochondria suddenly function better and they make a lot more pregnenolone and they make, they can sort of manage their, um, uh, sorry, cortisol much more easily because that's sort of light driven and it can cause the pregnenolone steal. And I always say to people, you know, stop fussing about silly little cortisol things like, oh, should I have a cold plunge? or should I exercise? It's like, no, the blue light's the thing that's going to ramp your cortisol up more than anything. So deal with that first. Uh, and I think people kind of uh, have got this idea cortisol's bad and they'll take things like ashwagandha to lower it or be frightened of hormetic stresses, whereas the actual culprit is their circadian rhythm and the too much blue light. And, and even just dealing with a pregnenolone steel can be enough for some people, men and women, to feel great and they don't need exogenous hormones after all or they may not need them for another 10 years mm -hmm. yeah and the other hormone that mitochondria are responsible for is melatonin correct yeah and they make it in huge amounts um throughout the day so when uh, studies have been done scott zimmerman published a paper this year they make more melatonin in the morning than the pineal gland makes at night so they're making melatonin for themselves to repair themselves during the day and, and all lots of other cells make melatonin like the gut makes it it's um, not true that it's just the eye and the pineal gland that the mitochondria are at it all day so it's obviously got a different light programming or it doesn't just get into the places or the sleep center of the brain or it's just got a slightly different light signature to nighttime melatonin its purpose is is for the mitochondria it's for the, it's for themselves to, to repair during the day because exercise even though it's good for us is inherently very very stressful for the mitochondria so they need to protect themselves and that's why working out in blue light is so bad so it's not the act of working out it's the act that there's no red light and no near infrared light in, in gyms so just changing lighting in gyms would do a lot to help young men and women who are exercise sort of addicts and thinking they're being healthy but sometimes just opening the window or opening the door in the gym and if you go outside to exercise you can do crossfit to your heart's content mm -hmm. yeah because you're avoiding that hypoxy hypoxic effect of the, of the blue light and all the gyms have several te uh, televisions um and i counted in my gym there's i mean these are huge screens too not small little things there was 30 televisions in my gym and that's not even including everyone's cell phone. <laughs> and then oh, it drives me insane because when I used to work out, you know, uh, there was nothing there. You just went in. There was no stupid vending mach machines and rubbish like that. There was no phones. There were no tellies because basically you go to the gym to go in a flow state and exercise. And that's why people are just sitting there looking at TikTok or why do you need to text your friend? Just learn how to concentrate and just do a <laughs> workout because like I can go in the gym and the people look exactly the same as they did a year ago because they never make any results or because they're just <laughs> sitting on their phones and it just drives me insane because it's basically very selfish and also the other thing the blue light and the tellies do is deplete your dopamine and that's not just for mood it's for movement so the less dopamine you have the worse your movement so the chance of an injury is higher mm -hmm. and it makes you kind of 
not enjoy your workout as much or people are thinking oh when can I go home and watch Netflix or when can I leave this place whereas before if it, if it just has ordinary lighting no phones no tellies people can actually really get into their workouts and get the most out of their workout whereas in some ways it's probably better for some people not to even bother go to the gym yeah especially if you're older um Post 50, we'll just argumentatively say post 50, and you're starting to see mitochondrial uh, dysfunction, then really where you want to focus that the health and, and the locality of the mitochondria is in the brain and the heart. And so if you're going to double whammy it and you're going to start throwing all of the attention to the mitochondria and the skeletal muscle and adding the hypoxia to it, you're really just destroying your health, I think. Yeah, I think it depends on how on on the individual because there are huge benefits from moving because you make melatonin and obviously the collagen's piezoelectric, so you can make electrons, and then you've got all of the functional neurology benefits because it's highly stimulatory for the parietal lobe and the um the the frontal lobe, and that's really important for prevent, preventing dementia on one level. So I haven't got a problem at all with the actual movement aspect. It's just the environment in which you move in. So I, I don't know yet because there are no studies. Is it worse to, if you're over 50 to not exercise at all in a badly lit gym full of phones and tellies, or, or, or is it does it still out? Does, do the risks mm -hmm. still outweigh the benefits? But it also depends on how much movement how much of a movement vocabulary a person has built over their life anyway. Because I think for a newbie who'd never moved, the benefits might outweigh the risks. But for someone like me that's done movement all my life, it's, when I'm 50, I think the benefits, it's not worth it anymore. I'd have to just find somewhere else to move in. Mm -hmm. I think that is a really good point. Movement is life. You have to move. Well, you don't have to. But you can. Oh, no, I think movement's man's best medicine. Another one yeah. of my life goals is I would love to do a Pilates lesson for Jack Cruz, like to teach him Pilates. <laughs> I would love to get to know. And I'm not, I'm not shy about this. I'd even next time I do a podcast, I'm going to tell him because that's one thing. I would just love to teach him movement or do mm -hmm. movement with him because I think people misunderstand him and try to say he's anti-exercise. But I think like we're saying, we are saying it's like food. It's the environment in which you do your exercise in that matters, not the exercise itself. But I still, you know, I'd love to get my hands on him from, as a Pilates teacher. That'd be incredible. <laughs> I'm sure he would love that. <laughs> not if, if I don't, if I don't film it, then he'd be fine about it. Yeah, I, I, also, say, I want to see the documented <laughs> progress. Yeah, exactly. I'd make him wear the shorts, like Joseph Pilates and Mr. <laughs> Angle just did everything in white underpants. The thing is, he'd probably love that because he's a big nudist anyway. So he'd yeah. be uh, yeah. Um, I wouldn't ever want to embarrass him, but I'd still, it's just one of my dreams. And it's, you know, I might as well put it out there to the universe and, you know, manifested a bit but you know I think it would do him good to but he, he's an example of an older gentleman that would benefit from movement but I think it would be terrible to put him in a gym because he works in blue light in his operating theatre so that's another th thing to consider about people is what's their day job mm -hmm. because if they have a day job in blue light all day and you put them in a gym it's terrific but if somebody was say a man who's out all side out all side outside all day cutting trees and doing the garden maybe he could get lots of benefits from a gym because he's only in it for half an hour and sure. he's in normal sunlight for the other 12 hours of the day mm -hmm. yeah and yeah, I mean, you could always do some sort of blue blocking as well um, 
you know, if you did work behind, I, I like to use Iris. I have that on my computer um, to block the blue. But yeah, I think time, uh, how much time, how much exposure exposure that we have to the blue light is, is a good point. But yeah, I think that you're going to have to go to El Salvador if you want to do that for him because he's not going to go. He, he, he likes his low latitude. Oh, no, he came to the UK really recently and we were meant to all meet him. And then there was just, uh, you know, when you have different time zones and I've done this a million times, got really confused about the date because it's a different time zone. But no, definitely he does come up north. And I think he sometimes goes, he's got a property or uh, he does things in New Orleans and I go Mm -hmm. to Georgia. So, you know, I'm not going to El Salvador because I think my mum and dad would have a cardiac arrest (laughs) because they would be so frightened of the danger there because they said, well, I can understand why I want to go there for the weather, but, you know, wouldn't you need to hire people to protect you and wouldn't you get stuck in some kind of protection racket? And so I do see their point. But, yeah, the thing is, Dr. Cruz is going to have found a good place and a safe place to live in El Salvador. So, yeah, of course, I'm going to chase him around the world until he agrees to do Pilates with me. (laughs) (laughs) We're happy to be the platform for you to put that out to the universe. I love it. Oh, no, I think the thing is, I love him and I don't want people to take the piss out of him because I, that's the that's the thing. It gets me very cross when people troll my videos of him sharing information. And, you know, I think, I, you know, I, it would just be I would like him to do it. But then I just think the nasty, stupid, sort of closed minded people would would mock him. And that would I'd feel bad because I'd made him be mocked. He probably doesn't care, but I would. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. He doesn't seem to give two hoots about what people think. And rightfully so. He's on a mission. And when you're trying to flip paradigms on their head, you really have to be that kind of person who can put your chest to the wind and just speak truth. Yeah, exactly. And he's been beating his drum for 20 years and he's had loads of opposition and people have laughed at him and, you know, he still just keeps going. And I think as I've got older and seen more and more clients, I get less and less patient and I'm not as as I'm not uncompetitive compassionate I'm just not as polite as I used to be and and, you, and people now do a lot more because I'm a lot more firm whereas Jack's a whole other level and I think that's why he's saved people because he's bellowed at them the truth and mm-hmm. it's rung loud and clear and, and for some people that's how it has to be so you, you know to, so he's saved so many lives from being how he is because some people just wouldn't listen to someone who's much more polite. Right sometimes you have to be a lion and not a lamb. Yes, definitely. Or or a bear and not a, you know. <laughs> Don't poke a the bear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Because it's like, yeah, yeah, I agree. And also it's a time and a place. And, and as I get more experience, you kind of learn how to be firm and not cruel and how to mm. not embarrass people. Because if you do that, it, sometimes, as you know, as a doctor yourself, that it makes patients worse because they'll just carry on doing the thing you don't want them to do, but just do it in secret. So it, mm-hmm. it, it like takes time. And I think you know, he, he he does, he is very good at getting the message through loud and clear. And some people just need a home truth or they just need a kick in the hole, as we'd say in the UK. <laughs> yeah, I think delivery, delivery does make yeah. a difference. And, you know, just, um, just feeling out the room and, and who you're in a room with. Um, I, I, I learned to, to navigate those nuances mm-hmm. as a naturopathic doctor, because I do see a lot of people who have been gas, gaslit in the allopathy mm-hmm. world. 
and they're coming in with complex problems. And going back to what you were saying is that, okay, so your labs turn out to be totally normal, but you feel like garbage and everyone says, oh, it's just stress or it's in your head. So I deal with a lot of people who come in sort of, I guess, feeling, um, I don't want to say vic- victimized, uh, but sort of defeated, if you will. And it doesn't take much for some people for you to just push them over the edge and you scare them away. And so I think empowering people is the most important thing when it comes to education. I want to empower and I want to inspire. I don't want you to be afraid. You know, you can you can send that information out in different ways. But Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I agree. Because I think if people have wasted a lot of money, uh, they feel like they've been conned and they, you know, people are embarrassed when somebody's taken, played them like a violin. Or also if if things didn't work, often people feel like it was their fault, even though it just wasn't the right diagnosis, if, if you even want to believe in diagnoses or the right approach. And they get, you know, the more no's they get, the more they get hopeless. So if you know, they do need some TLC. But I think, like you say, it completely depends on the client because some people it's misinformation. They want to do everything. It's just nobody's given them the right plan or protocol unique to them. Uh, And other people feel like somebody else should fix them and they don't really want to take action. They just want you to find a new supplement or light or sort of grounding mat or magnetico for them to just you know, be passive with. So I think, like you say, but also, you know, sometimes if you give people something and it works, even if it is a magnetico and nothing else has worked and and it helps them sleep, they're obviously going to believe in you and magnetism and light and water and much more likely to take on your other suggestions. So I agree. Everybody's an individual. We're all an N equals one. So yes, the the, the horses for courses. (laughs) Yeah, I think I think if you 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 can do just have them do one small change at a time, then you, you get better compliance. And um, when I have patients who come in who are overweight, for example, and I bring to their attention, "Hey, you eat perfectly. You eat better than I do. You eat less than I do. You exercise," and then you tell them how much are you know you ask them how much are you on your computer? It's like, well, eight hours a day for work. Then I Netflix it at night. Then I'm playing my little, I don't know, Sudoku or whatever before bed. <laughs> and you're like, uh, let's let's do a little something with that blue light because that could be making you make cortisol and, and raise your insulin and sugar and all of that. And then you sort of start to demystify the whole food conversation and and the judgment of people who are overweight aren't moving. Um, so I think that environment precedes um I think supplements and food more than anything. So addressing... Oh, yeah, definitely. And also, I just say it's not your fault. Just blame the blue light because it's pushed your blood sugar up. It's yeah. pushed your cortisol up. It, mm-hmm. um, it's, made, it's stolen your dopamine and made you eat things maybe you shouldn't. And it's just blame it on that. Because mm-hmm. I think, again, especially with obesity, like you say, because it's so visible on the outside and there's such a stigma that, that uh, you know, sometimes, yeah, of course, there might be more underneath when I dig in. But I think, you know, initially just say to them, you know, you didn't know about the light and... 
that's a big factor. And I just say some people are just more sensitive than blue light than others, because I think they are, especially women, we're sensitive, more sensitive to light in general. But I think, for example, people like Dr. Cruz and Rick Rubin, who got extremely large because of blue light, I think there are certain individuals, they're going to have SNPs in their melanopsin receptors and SNPs in their POMC. And I don't for one minute deny that I think some people lose weight quicker in UV light and other people just gain it faster in um, artificial blue light. And from people I've looked at and their backgrounds and their light exposure, it's starting to, I think we're just looking at the wrong genetics sometimes. Because yes, of course, it's the environment, but it wouldn't be any surprise to me that people are more or less sensitive to different wavelengths of light. And of course, the more melanated somebody is, you know, they're going to have more of a problem with making vitamin D and even getting the signal through them. So that's, again, blocking the light show in some way. So it doesn't mean it just means they have to accept that they need more light than, say, somebody who's less melanated. And again, vitamin D is sort of correlated with weight issues. We won't go into it. It's a bit complicated, but Mm -hmm. I think people know that. Yeah, the the mitochondrial needs vary, uh, I think, based on mitochondrial haplotypes and, um, uh, for example, sunlight versus cold plunging. Um, and then, yeah, like you were saying, women needing, being more sensitive to, to light as it affects our hormones especially. Um, all of these things are considered as an, on an individual basis, right? Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask if someone wanted to, you know, and I'm doing the deuterium depleted water. I've been doing it for, I think, three months now. And it, it costs a pretty penny. I mean, I think I pay a couple hundred dollars a month for that. Uh, if someone wanted to deplete deuterium for mitochondrial health, uh, could you suggest maybe a few food items? I think we covered a little bit of that. Maybe I think the biggest thing is avoiding seed oil. Um, yeah, avoiding seed oils and just in simple language, um, fat is low in deuterium and carbs are high. And then protein is sort of depends on the protein. The worse it is, the higher the deuterium. So if people follow some kind of ketogenic diet, that's automatically going to be uh, low in deuterium. And, and even though I'm trained in medical ketogenic diets, I was a bit vague there because for some people that might mean a carnivore diet that's a two to one and somebody else, it might mean a low carb diet that's got 60 or 70 grams of um, carbohydrates. And, and those might work for those particular individuals. But then, of course, lifestyle changes. If you've got a bad body clock or circadian rhythm and you can't sleep properly, then you're not going to deplete deuterium properly because you've disturbed your detox abilities just for, for simplicity. And then too much blue light means the deuterium is more likely to stay in and not enough red and near infrared is less likely to come out. The cold plunges de- deplete deuterium, as do saunas. So, so there are lots of ways to de- deplete deuterium. And I think I'd always start with a ketogenic diet because the food electrons and and protons are going to go right into the mitochondria. So they're like going to go right in. And then with the deuterium depleted water, I would probably add that later. But because like you say, it's pricey. And also you want to get the PPM right, that for a healthy person, you would just drink, say, 120 PPM and do a depletion for about two months in combination with a ketogenic diet and other deuterium depleting activities. 
um, because you don't want to just take deuterium depleted water all the time because like anything, your body gets used to it. And we have cancer cells growing all the time. And I always think you should always leave potential weapons for cancer later. That's why even cancer patients don't just stay on deuterium depleted water nonstop because it's something you want to deplete deuterium and then you know you can carry on with your ketogenic diet and your saunas and all of the rest because they're sort of positive lifestyle changes whereas with the water i would definitely say it's not an all the time activity however you can approach it a different way you can think okay my water's 147 ppm say in the uk i'm going to just drop it down to 145 or 142 and just use the deuterium depleted water like that so there's many many different ways to approach a deuterium depletion whether you actually want to sort of strip it out or just dilute your own natural drinking water so it's not as high in deuterium as it was normally and then implement the lifestyle changes mm-hmm. Dr. Pugh, I had a question about water. Uh, I gave up my filters um, a few years ago, and I, I use a distiller at home, and I love it. And and I just do some remineralization. But I was wondering what your recommendations for remineralizing if somebody is using a home distiller. All right. Yeah, I always use, um, I, at the moment, I'm using Barjagol sea salt, but there's lots of others you can use, like Celtic Grey. So that sort of covers minerals and then um, sodium. You could put some quinton in there because that's sort of special seawater. Uh, then I add potassium citrate just because it, it, from studies and knowing a lot about my clients, we are that's the hard to get mineral. Then I add magnesium chloride. I particularly like Carolyn Dean's, the stabilized magnesium, just because that's her entire life, magnesium. Then I have a whole selection of individual minerals because i'm quite into them that i'll add in a couple of drops of like like some silica or some lithium and stuff like that and and it tastes absolutely delicious Mm. so i look forward to my water like you know more than anything else and um again there's all of the interesting sides of resonances with, with minerals as well and i'll even add some cell salts in sometimes so i've taken the whole minerals and their resonances and their light show to my own other level and i always i'll structure it as well with sunlight or if people want to buy an analemma one they can but the, the sun's free so yeah i take my water quite seriously and it's so delicious i can't drink any other water now <laughs> than mine even water out of a bottle that's good quality i i think oh no mine's better mm-hmm. um so yeah that's just one of my sort of obsessions i think and, it, and it's a, like luckily a cheap obsession and, and my clients will happily do that as well because it just tastes nice and some people think well i don't care what she's told me to put in it and it's a big concoction and it's going to help me it tastes really nice so therefore i'm just going to drink this from now on and it's easy and i don't have to buy bottles and packaging because that's another thing i'm that untidy already the last thing i want is more packaging and bottles in my house mm-hmm. and also quite a lot of people can be a bit funny about the environment so i think a distiller to them and some minerals and some sea salt and something natural appeals to them whereas if you try to get people like my mum and dad they'll never buy water in bottles ever because of the packaging and there are lots of other people who think that way too well, I that's, that's just my two cents and also i think carbonating water has lots of value because the, you get structured water around the bubbles and then um carbon dioxide is a really misunderstood um gas in in the planet so i think there's benefits from having carbonated water as well you can just buy a soda stream and do that 
Yeah, I, I love the um, I, I love the concoction idea. Uh, do you share the recipe for that, or is that information available on your website? So maybe I can start. Um, yeah, I have a, I have a minerals course because it's uh. one of these things that people get so confused about sodium and salt that I can tell you can tell people oh you need this amount of sodium per day or this ratio of potassium to sodium but they don't really understand that it's attached to something like chloride or citrate so I do have a minerals course that kind of explains everything in simple terms and Mm. just tells people put this amount in in, and this in your water and you need it because of this and here's the research to say how much and like explain to people um, because, you know, even though we've talked in very sort of high level about deuterium and electrons and everything, there are still people who are terrified of salt. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's just sometimes going back to basics. And I think with recipes, it's like, you know, each one of us emits our own individual light spectrum when it comes to making your own mineral water out of sort of natural minerals, because there's all sorts of different preparations you can buy that are natural. You sort of find something that resonates with you because I think the energy and consciousness of water is really overlooked. And our ancestors, of course, knew how important water was with holy water and such like. So I think there's, you know, I can sort of give a sort of overview of a recipe, but then, you know, some people might need a bit more lithium and other people like to add silica because it can bind aluminium. Some people want to add a drop of iodine. So there's all kinds of things you can do with your water. Mm -hmm. I have a very strange question. What you oh, no. coming off of what you just said? There's a lot of strange things you could do with water. We have I have this question because I've done colonics. We've done colonics for a long time. We oh, use, I've had a colonic. My question is this: It's not going to be protium. It's going to be deuterium. What pros cons is that? Does the benefit outweigh any deuterium load that you're giving someone in a colonic? Um. Well, the thing is, there's lots of deuterium. Poo is full of deuterium. Mm-hmm. So um, you're actually washing it out because, mm-hmm. yeah, you, you're going to put some some water in them. But the water is just going to depend on the deuterium content of your water. And, yeah, I agree it's an, an absorbent area. But then when you have a colonic, a lot of stuff that's got deuterium in it comes out. So you'll either have less deuterium or it's just going to be the same. But my friend, I've got a friend who's a nurse who does colonics and people are completely obsessed with it. And it, it, it can be like one or, or to three colonics can be massively life-changing. I just thought it was interesting, but I didn't have anything wrong with me. So maybe these colonics on these people that are really blocked up, it's actually some kind of deuterium depletion that's sort of getting them over a hump. So I wouldn't think, I think it's a good thing. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't worry about about the absorption from the water because you're getting there's loads of deuterium in poo more than the water so in simple maths more is going out than coming in awesome okay that that question has been burning in my heart and i and i had a feeling you were going to say something to that effect um so on so there's two different situations so you'll have people say uh drinking drink half your weight and uh, drink half your drink how does it, how's the saying? Half your weight in ounces. Half your weight in ounces. This is, the question is, it's like, you have two extremes. You'll have people who will do dry fasting, right? Oh, yeah. Okay, and so, I mean, then that's hard. That's difficult to do, but, hey, it's free. And if you had no other, <laughs> no other uh, means to deplete deuterium, you could just not drink water for a day, 
In fact, you would or do not, and not eat as and well. Not eat and not shower, yeah. right? Because you're going to absorb water that way too. I and mean, people go to the extremes. Um, so the other thing is on the opposite end of that, you'll have people who drink, and I know this because I have so many patients, they drink so much water and they always say that they always feel thirsty. They don't understand I'm drinking a gallon of water a day. How how am I not quenching my thirst? What, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, first of all, I'd have to know what the water is. But then mm-hmm. secondly, it's once you start doing that, you can end up messing up your um, antidiuretic hormone levels. And then excess water can sort of cause swellings in the brain in certain areas and make the problem worse. And that's just people being told something oh, you need to drink all this water because somebody wants you to buy water, more water. So it's back to the food companies telling people you need to eat six times a day. So I think it's just misinformation. And I think it's, again, people have lost, you know, touch with their own bodies that they don't really know anymore. You know, it's like they're not connected anymore. So it's just, again, you know, drink, you know, to thirst uh, and then start to reconnect with nature, light, circadian rhythm and maybe sort of start to drink a more sensible level and and then with the dry fasting that's not going to hurt anybody to do it sometimes and I think it just depends on what resonates with the person because I think if somebody's just drinking for the sake of it like I know women can do it as well and washing it also they wash out all their minerals so sometimes it can be that so I would just you know there's no exact amount I would recommend but I definitely think that equation you said is too much and then doing what Dr. Borosh does, who I respect immensely for his work. I couldn't drink just a cup of coffee in the morning, but he swears by it and it works for him. So mm. I think you just have to find out what works for you. Like with your clients, if they're feeling really thirsty all the time, and they're obviously your patients, they've got problems as well. So, you know, it's the quality of the water and then understanding when and, you know, why are they doing it? So, mm. so yeah, I think it's like, I, I wouldn't drink as much as Dr. Cruz does, but then I don't live in the same place as he does because it's not hot where I am. So I think it's, it all does come back down to other aspects of your environment and your physical activity levels as well, because that's going to um, change your water needs. Mm-hmm. So we know that we definitely don't want deuterium in the mitochondria, but deuterium mm-hmm. serves us well, for example, in collagen. Is that correct? Yeah, the thing is we need deuterium in the collagen for to give it tensile strength, otherwise we'd fall apart. So the joints that take the most tensile load, say the legs are going to have uh, more collagen than, say, a finger. And a bird like a chicken that doesn't fly very much is not going to have much deuterium in its sort of wings, whereas something like a falcon is going to have uh, more deuterium in, in the sort of tendons of the wings. So, yes. And like a great big heavy animal like a bison is going to have more deuterium than a lamb just because it's got more tensile load going through its legs. And also people don't really need to worry about natural collagen. You can still make bone broth and ox. ox the tail doesn't have very much deuterium. You can still carry on eating all of that. Then the marine collagen fish just float. So that's kind of different. They're all fine not to be frightened of that. It's the highly concentrated, dehydrated collagen supplements from factories that are going to be more of a deuterium bomb because they're just mm-hmm. not natural. That was the next question. So that's question all I have to say I about it. I, I don't think, I, I think there's truth in taking collagen, collagenous um, food, but just um, eat the gristle or the oxtail or the ox cheek or 
um, whatever the fish bones. Don't just buy some pretty looking package that's come out of a factory because it's kind of traumatized collagen and it's too concentrated as well. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's it's like the light, you know, when you eat some gristle and whatever, chicken, goose skin or whatever, there's not just collagen in there. There's a whole great big family of connective tissues and proteins. So it's a bit like just taking light out of context of just thinking, oh, all light's not very good apart from red. So we must bathe ourselves in just a red light panel all day, which isn't a good idea either. It's like the collagen. There's more to connective tissue than just collagen. It's not that's not the magic ingredient. If you get the natural stuff, you're going to get all kinds of other uh, beneficial um, connective tissues and unusual compounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I um, had one more question for you to wrap things up. I wanted to just sort of set the stage for what downstream conditions are associated with uh, mitochondrial heteroplasmy and have the heavy water deuterium burden to those mitochondria because I don't think a lot of people know what diseases can manifest from this heavy water. Well, first of all, it's um, aging. To all, to all, wherever you have mitochondrial damage, you're just going to age quicker. So that's all of you, like from your face to your energy levels to your vitality. Um, then, as it gets deeper, with say we just focus on mitochondrial damage because they're really important for running our metabolism. If we've got inefficiency, or, or you know, if we're thermodynamically inefficient and we have sort of molecular crowding and build up of unburnt fat and glucose that's just a recipe for gaining weight and, and a lot of people complain about that and then as uh, as things get worse you know the, the weight gain can start to turn into diabetes and then that opens you up to all the complications there if you have deuterium sort of depositing in organs as well it's obviously going to cause damage to that organ in particular um, so that it's numerous, uh, really, because once you've once you knock out your mitochondria, you've knocked out your energy and your water supply. So now that's going to affect your immune system, your mood, your energy levels. So it's kind of not just something that's going to cause disease that people think, oh, I don't care about this because it's not going to happen for 10 years. It's happening right now. And nobody will tell me, no, I don't want any more energy. I've got plenty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, it's just very simple there that just having more energy <clears throat> means that you can run all of the systems in your body properly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Energy levels is or I should say low energy levels is the number one reason people come in to see a naturopathic doctor. Um, mm. Fatigue, energy drops. Um, yeah, it's 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 vital. It's the most important conversation I think people are having these days is looking at mitochondrial DNA over the chromosomal DNA. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, because my degree was biochemistry and genetics, so I completely accept my degree was useless in genetics as well because, yeah, <laughs> I know that the, the mitochondria have their own genes, but, yeah, that's the thing. I'm happy to say that uh-huh. it, it was wrong. So, yeah, I agree. <laughs> you know, because there's so many of them. They, they only have, what is it, 34 or 37 genes because there's thousands of them in the cell and we only have one nucleus they outnumber our own DNA by thousands. So, yeah. Yeah, and mitochondria used to be a ba- bacteria, right? And we 
sort of adopted them. And I guess the cell membrane still remains bacteria, but super fascinating. Mitochondria are just fascinating. I don't know. It's like you can always say, did we adopt them or did they <laughs> invade us? I think, I think it's probably the letter. We're just like loads of different kinds of cells all stuffed into one. And then obviously a chloroplast is another kind of bacteria that just does oxidative phosphorylation, which is what the mitochondria do backwards, and it's called photosynthesis. So that's just another bacteria that decided it wanted to take up residence in a nice, cosy cell and have an arrangement. Okay, you look after me and feed me and keep me protected, and I'll make energy and water and things for you. And then they lived happily ever after <laughs> until the tech came and blue light, and you know now it's all different. But yeah, the mitochondria are kind of the crux of everything because like eighty five percent of chronic illnesses from mitochondrial problems. So just that statistic alone is enough to make people think, well, yeah, that's kind of pretty big. I better look after my mitochondria and not fill myself up with deuterium. Mm, I love it. That's a that's a perfect way to summarize this whole conversation. Um, I am so grateful to have you on today. You're just a plethora of information and so mentally stimulating. We have to have you back. Um, uh, can you tell us where people can find you to go deeper into your brain? <laughs> oh, yeah. I've got um, social media. So I've got TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. And it's just Busy Superhuman or Dr. Sarah Pugh. So I'm quite easy to find. Mm -hmm. And then if people want to work with me, I have a coaching group that's a monthly thing. And I have some courses. Uh, but I have lots of free information as well. And sometimes the people are better off just starting to digest the free stuff. And then they're welcome to move forwards with me at, at another time. So yeah, just busy superhuman mm -hmm. and you'll find um, all sorts. Nice. Um, and we would de definitely like to have you back on. And if you ever wanted to swing down to Seattle, Washington, we would love to see you on site and uh, and meet you in person. <laughs> oh, oh, that's great. Because I'm actually going to Oregon in March because that's close because I'm participating in a conference by randy the mito man so i'm actually quite near to um within reason it's like not far mm -hmm. so i am not far away um and it's kind of i'm not going to just fly to oregon and then just go back to the uk in three days i'm going to stay in the u.s and visit people oh. and try and do some work at the same time so yes it's a definite possibility Oh yeah, Sweet. and i i would definitely make that trip out there uh to to see you and we can get Get some deuterium depleted water together. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, the thing is, I, I want to go to Seattle myself because, I, I mean, oh. Oregon I've not been to. I know Goonies was filmed there, but that's not <laughs> the reason I'm excited about going. But, um, <laughs> Seattle, you know, I, I want to look at as well. And people, oh, why don't you look at Seattle? It's terrible now. And I'm like, yeah, but you live there, so you're obviously going to say that. I'm going to like it because I've never seen it before. Yes, we're we're happy to to take you around and on a walkabout and, and show you around. Um, boy, we've just thoroughly enjoyed having you and, uh, we really do hope to see you in March. Please reach well, out. Be lovely. Yes. It's, I've really enjoyed this. Uh, and also again, being a circadian person, you know, part of me was like, oh no, it's Sunday and it's going to be half past six by the time I finish it. <laughs> but the thing is I have quite a lot of tactics of to undo a little bit of blue light. I have got Iris on my computer, which is a complete nightmare sometimes if I'm trying to edit anything or find a blue box <laughs> to click on. But, yeah. You know, 
know, it's been, you know, really worth my while. And I think I'll end on that, that some people get so obsessed with circadian stuff, they become a complete recluse. <laughs> and that's no good either. So, you know, yeah. a little bit of blue light with wonderful company. Um, you know, I don't think it's going to harm me very much. And I, I've really enjoyed talking with like-minded, intelligent people. Mm. Bless you. Oh. Thank you so much, Dr. Pugh. Oh, well, Thanks. you you get off this blue light and we'll we'll see you soon. We'll see you in March. Right. Oh, right. Yes, that's that's Yes, that's we, we're booked now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Is it the beginning of March? Um, I need to double check because I know it's in March um, and that just I'm just thinking, OK, don't worry, you've got um, some all of February to make your presentation. That, but I need to just double check the dates. Um, that's where, But for anyone, if it's still recording, that Mandy, Randy, the Mito man who wrote the Mitochondriac Manifesto is hosting a conference and it's in Oregon and you'll be able to find it just from that piece of information. Oh, we'll definitely put that in our show notes and uh, yeah, because I think that'd be something fantastic for people to attend. Yes, definitely. And, you know, to, it's kind of if people are all brand new to quantum biology, I always say that's a good book to start with, mm-hmm. um, the, the Mitochondriac Manifesto, because it's kind of reasonably readable to a, a new person that likes reading. Mm-hmm. What an incredible book title. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <sighs> All right, okay. my friend. Okay. All right. Happy Sunday. Take care. Happy Sunday, yes, and um, have a great uh, rest of the day. Thank you. Thanks. Much love. Thank you. Bye. Yes, Bye. likewise. Bye. We hope this conversation has empowered you. Remember, you are unique and you are a miracle. Your body doesn't make mistakes. It responds perfectly to an imperfect environment. Until next time, go get that life.